The following lecture was delivered at the 14th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Washington, D.C., a project of the Rohr Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it, and we encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Mr. Nathan Lewin will now present his lecture, Highlights of 50 Years of Supreme Court Arguments. Okay, how many of you have ever been to the Supreme Court of the United States to hear an oral argument in the Supreme Court? Not many. It's a worthwhile experience. I wish I could tell you right now that you should go down to the Supreme Court and hear an argument, but they're not in session and won't be coming back till the first Monday in October. And I, I expect to cover this this in this session, although there's lots of stories I can tell you and will tell you about the Supreme Court, but the Supreme Court will not be sitting on Yom Kippur. And there's a whole story behind that. Used to, Supreme Court used to sit on Yom Kippur and not care about it. Now they don't sit on Yom Kippur and there's a story. We'll get to the story about Yom Kippur. But since we start on time, the Supreme Court starts on time. If you go there, then by 10 minutes to 10, everything is quiet. And then boom, the clerk announces the honorable justices of the Supreme Court of the United States and they come in. So I will begin by telling you a story that really doesn't involve the Supreme Court, but it's a story that people like so much in terms of oral arguments that lawyers present that it's worth telling because you're here on time, so you get another story. I have had the marvelous experience of arguing appeals in every federal circuit in the country. There are 11 circuits and the DC circuit and the federal circuit. I'm a member of all those bars. Over all the years, I've argued appeals in every court of appeals. What was the last one? I mean, I went through a whole bunch. The last one was the Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit. I had a case in which I was representing on appeal, coincidentally, a Chabad interest. I mean, I've represented Chabad various matters, but this was a Chabad case in the Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit, headquartered in St. Louis. And the Eighth Circuit does let you know in advance who the judges are going to be in the case that you're going to argue. <clears throat> and it turned out that for that day, the Eighth Circuit had decided that the whole Eighth Circuit, all the judges of the Eighth Circuit, were going to sit on that day in St. Paul, Minnesota, in different courtrooms in a building, in a federal building. And my case that I was going to argue an appeal on for Chabad was scheduled for the afternoon, two o'clock in the afternoon in one of the rooms. I knew the names of the three judges who were going to hear the appeal, <clears throat> but I didn't know the judges. I had never appeared before them. The chief judge was a man by the name of Theodore McMillian. So I looked him up. Lawyers have got books. You can look up the judges, what they've done. I looked up Judge McMillian, dis discovered he was a Carter appointee, apparently liberal, probably Democrat from St. Louis. And I was going to go and watch in the mornings since the case was going to be argued in the afternoon. I would watch in the mornings as the three judges were hearing different cases, but they were in different groups in different rooms. So first I walked in to the room where Judge McMillian, who was going to be the chief judge in the case, he was hearing a case, and I walk into the room. There's a crowd there, podium, lawyer standing at the podium, three judges up front. In the middle, a man with a brass plate in front of it says Judge McMillian. I was shocked. Why? First of all, I was shocked because I looked and he was African-American. I really didn't know that from what had appeared in the books. But what was even more shocking as the argument was going on, and I watched, was he was sitting there in the courtroom 
with a yarmulke on his head. Judge McMillian with a yarmulke on his head? What's he doing that for? Big puzzle. I couldn't get an answer. I listened for a while. Then I went off to see the other two judges in action. I watched them. Neither of them had a yarmulke, but they were hearing arguments. I was puzzled. I went out into the hall, and it turned out that my law firm had had a intern who was going through law school, Georgetown Law School, who was a son of one of the judges of the Eighth Circuit. And I bump into him in the hall, and I say, look, can you explain to me what's going on? I've walked into this courtroom, and Judge McMillian is sitting there with a yarmulke on his head. What's happening? Why would Judge McMillian wear a yarmulke? And this young man says to me, Mr. Lewin, I'll tell you, my dad mentioned that the other day and was surprised, didn't understand it. Well, went off to lunch. The local Lubavitch rabbis provide a terrific lunch. You go to lunch, well, I mean, you may not get paid a lot by Lubavitch, but lunch is <laughs> fantastic. So they're sitting at lunch, a bunch of the Lubavitch rabbis in St. Paul, and they say to me, have we got a Jewish judge in this case? I say, I don't think so. You have a judge by the name of McMillian who wears a yarmulke in court this morning. They're shocked. They say, where's a yarmulke? Is he a Muslim? I say, it's not a Muslim yarmulke. It looks like it was bought in Yerushalayim on Ben Yehuda Street. Big puzzle. We go back, two o'clock, they're all sitting, the Lubavitch rabbis are sitting in the audience, they've taken off the black hats, they're sitting in black yarmulkes. The court calls the court to order, clerk calls the court to order, they come marching into the courtroom, first is Judge McMillian wearing a yarmulke, sits down in the middle seat, the other two judges on both sides, <clears throat> calls the case, I get up, I argue the case, my opponent argues the other side, I argue the rebuttal, let you know we won that case ultimately. Sometimes I tell the story and forget to say that we won the appeal, but it's very lively. Judge McMillian is asking questions, the other judges are asking questions. And he's sitting there in a yarmulke. Well, I finish. And when you finish an argument in the Court of Appeals, the chief judge routinely says, thank you, counsel. We'll take the case under advisement, which means they may take two weeks. They may take 10 weeks. They may take two years until they decide the case. Thank you, counsel. And I'm stepping back. And there was a transcript of the argument. And as I'm stepping back, Judge McMillian says, maybe I better say something, because otherwise people will think I'm biased. I wear this yarmulke, he called it a yarmulke. I wear this yarmulke not for any religious reason, but there's an air conditioner up above that blows down, and I don't have as much hair as my colleagues do. Well, that's one of the surprises, one of the surprising incidents that you can get when you're arguing in the courts. <clears throat> Let me tell you, now that I've told you about the Court of Appeals, let's get to the Supreme Court, because that's the subject we're talking about today, about the years that I have spent and the experiences I've had in terms of arguing in the Supreme Court of the United States. First question, before you even argue, your case gets scheduled. What happens if, like happens to me frequently with courts, if the date that the court has set conflicts with Yontif? It happens to be a Jewish holiday. Well, I'll tell you, in 1994, I had two cases in the last session of the Supreme Court I called up the clerk's office. I said, look, I celebrate Passover. They, would, they could possibly have scheduled it for that day. No problem. Clerk's office says, Mr. Lewin, well, 
check the date with you, and they schedule it for a time that would not be a problem. That's relevant for what I've just told you now, because the following year, the following year, 1995, the Supreme Court had arguments scheduled for Yom Kippur. And mysteriously, although the arguments were scheduled for Yom Kippur, a week before the court announced it was not going to sit to hear arguments on that day. How did that happen? Well, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, very distinguished and highly qualified justice, when she was asked about this publicly, I think she was covering up for Chief Justice Rehnquist because she said, well, we then had, at that point, both Justice Ginsburg and Justice Stephen Breyer on the court, two Jews, and we went to Justice Rehnquist and we told him it's not fair that a Jewish lawyer would be required to argue a case on Yom Kippur, and Justice Rehnquist said, okay, we're calling off the arguments for Yom Kippur. Well, I knew Justice Rehnquist. He was a very fine man, but not really that sensitive to religion. It was a hard story to believe, but the story that I heard at the time, and this is hearsay, I don't know this firsthand, but this is what I was told when I mysteriously saw that they had called off Yom Kippur arguments, was that Justices Ginsburg and Breyer, because now there were two Jewish justices, went to Chief Justice Rehnquist and said, can we call off the arguments for Yom Kippur? And he said, absolutely not. If you want, okay, don't come to court on Yom Kippur. You can hear the tapes of the argument and vote on the case even if you're not there. And Rehnquist turned them down. And they went away kind of unhappy about that, not knowing what they should do. Should they come and sit on Yom Kippur? Because neither one of them is observant. And both probably in the past had sat on court arguments on Yom Kippur. But then, Siata Deshmaya, Chief Justice Rehnquist was told, he had a back condition, that the time that they have to do surgery on his back is that Wednesday, Yom Kippur. So Chief Justice Rehnquist tells the other justices, I can't come. I won't sit with the court on that day. And according to the story that I heard, Ginsburg and Breyer said, ah, if Rehnquist is not there, we're going to go to the next senior justice of the court, who is Justice John Paul Stevens. And you have distributed a piece that I recently wrote about Justice Stevens, who frankly was not the most accommodating justice when it came to questions of religious discrimination. He was personally totally without any bias. He had two clerks who were Shomrei Shabbos. But when it came to the constitutional right to exercise Shmira Shabbos as opposed to being forced to do work, he did not think that the Constitution or the law protected that. But when Ginsburg and Breyer went to see him on this and they said, Justice Rehnquist, Chief Justice Rehnquist is not going to be there and you are going to be the justice who presides because he was then the senior justice. Will you call off the arguments for Yom Kippur? And Stevens said, yes. And he called off the arguments for Yom Kippur in 1995. And that is a precedent that the Supreme Court has followed ever since. This coming year, they will come, and I think it's October 9, is Yom Kippur. It's a Wednesday. The schedule is not out yet. But I can tell you 
There's going to be no arguments. Now there's three Jewish justices on the court. Okay. What happens now after the argument is scheduled? You have to prepare for the argument. But on the day of the argument, get dressed up very nicely. If you work for the government, you argue a case as an assistant to the Solicitor General, which I did on 12 occasions years and years ago when I worked at the Department of Justice. You have to wear a morning coat and striped pants. That's the uniform that is required for government lawyers appearing before the Supreme Court. It's traditional. So when I joined the Office of the Solicitor General, I got a morning coat and I got striped pants. When I left it, I no longer needed the morning coat and the striped pants. So I gave it to a younger lawyer in the Office of the Solicitor General who had started there. He subsequently became a judge on the Federal Circuit. He's still there as a senior judge. His name is Bill Bryson. Bryson is, I think, the only assistant to the Solicitor General other than myself, and maybe somebody to whom he gave the morning coat, who was wearing a non-shotness morning coat. Because I had it inspected for shotness when I bought it. Some of you may have watched the film that I was surprised to see about me before lunch or at lunch yesterday. You may have seen me standing in the morning coat and striped pants with then Senator Robert Kennedy because I argued for the government in a criminal prosecution of Jimmy Hoffa successfully. Hoffa was convicted. His case went up to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court affirmed because we were right. The government was right. And I got to argue a few minutes. The time that's allotted for Supreme Court argument is very limited. It's 30 minutes on a side. So in that case, the larger part of the argument was made by uh, the Assistant Attorney General for the Criminal Division. I had been involved with the Hoffa case at the time of the trial. I argued for the government on the appeal. The Supreme Court agreed to hear the case. And Bob Kennedy, who had a great interest in the prosecution of Jimmy Hoffa, told the then Attorney General, Nicholas Katzenbach, that he wanted me to argue the Hoffa case. I had done so successfully in the Court of Appeals, and he knew me from uh, the prosecution of the Hoffa case. Katzenbach told me, he called me in, and he said, Nat, he says, I've been asked by Senator Kennedy to see to it that you argue the Hoffa case. But the truth is, you're too young. If you, I stand up there, if you stand up there and we argue the case in the Supreme Court and, says Katzenbach to me, the Supreme Court reverses the conviction so that we lose it, people will say that I have thrown away Bob Kennedy's conviction of Jimmy Hoffa. I can't have somebody as young as you argue the case in the Supreme Court. But we'll put you in as a second possible lawyer. We're going to have Fred Vinson Jr., who is the Assistant Attorney General in the Criminal Division, argue the case, and you'll be on the list. And if you think it's helpful, give a note to Mr. Vinson and ask him to give you a couple of minutes. Well, the fact is you can hear the recording of that oral argument on a website called Oyez, O-Y-E-Z. And with all credit to Fred Vincent, who was a very nice man, he was extraordinarily boring and dull. 
And somehow when I get up to argue a case, judges wake up and ask a lot of questions and are interested. So after Vincent argued and everybody was falling asleep and the other side had argued, I slipped Vincent a note. And I said, just give me a couple of minutes. And I got up and I argued for the government. And all I can tell you is that some of the reporters who reported on the case said to me, Nat, you won the Hoffa case. They were all sleeping during Vincent's argument and they woke up when you argued. Now, when you argue, as I said, there's a red light and a white light on the podium. The white light tells you when you have five minutes left. The red light tells you when your time is up. Tell you a story. I mean, the Supreme Court really follows that precisely. Chief Justice Hughes, Charles Evans Hughes, years ago, who was the Chief Justice, he would stop people in the middle of a sentence. People said in the middle of a word in the syllable and say, thank you, counsel. And you were expected to sit down when that red light went on, finished. Chief Justice Rehnquist, a little bit more considerate. The current Chief Justice, Roberts, who himself had a lot of experience arguing cases before Justice, Chief Justice Rehnquist and was frequently cut off in the middle of a sentence, is much more compassionate. And he lets you finish a sentence. But let me tell you a story of a couple of, a number of years ago when there was a conference in Washington that was attended by the president of the Israeli Supreme Court, Mayor Shamgar, and the man who became his deputy, Justice Menachem Elon. They were here in Washington. And I attended the conference and knew Justices Elon and Shamgar. And it turned out that was a week that the court was hearing cases. So I said to Shamgar and Elon, have you ever gone to the Supreme Court of the United States? They said no. This was before there was even a new Supreme Court building in Jerusalem. They were still sitting in what was the Russian compound in Yerushalayim, in a you know, really rickety old building. I said, you ought to go and watch. I'll tell you what I can do. I can call the marshal's office and arrange for you to get good seats because the Supreme Court has a whole section up front, right? They're on the left of the court's bench for guests of the justices and important people who come in and want to hear an argument. So I called up the marshal's office and arranged to have Shamgar and Elon hear the arguments the next day. They went, and because they were there, I came too. There's a lawyer section up front. I sat in the lawyer section. The cases were extraordinary. A, you could understand the legal issues. Very often you go to the Supreme Court, the legal issues are so convoluted and so detailed about the meaning of this provision or that provision that you can't really follow. But the cases were simple enough that even, even justices of the Israeli Supreme Court could follow. And the lawyers were terrific. And the justice of the court really barraged questions, answers, back, forth. It was an exciting morning. 12 o'clock, the court recesses. End of the day, I walk out of my seat. Elon and Shamgar walk out of theirs. I meet them in the lobby, Great Hall. I say, how did you like it? They said, oh, it was so impressive. They loved it. They both loved it. We were so impressed. I say, you were so impressed. What impressed you the most? And I thought they would say, well, the Supreme Court chamber is so beautiful. I thought they would say, the lawyers were so good. I thought they would say the justices were terrific. I thought they would say the cases were so interesting. Neither one of them said that. They both immediately said, the red light. We love the red light. <laughs> because in Israel, we can't shut up the lawyers. <laughs> the lawyers up there 
He's in the middle of something. We say, we heard enough. No, no, I've got three more points. <laughs> you can't shut up a Jewish lawyer in the Israeli Supreme Court. Okay, so you have a limited amount of time. How do you know besides the lights? I'll tell you another funny story. Chief Justice Rehnquist, who again was a very nice man, but could get very short-tempered at times. There was a, you get a little book when you argue cases in the Supreme Court that tell you how you should behave, while, how to answer questions, things like that. And years ago, there was instruction in the book that said, don't ask the court how much time you have left. The yellow light will tell you when you have five minutes. And if you want to know before that, there's a big clock that's over the head of the chief justice. Look at the clock. That's what the book said. Well, lawyers followed the book. Some unfortunate lawyer, I don't remember what his name is, was standing there arguing a case in the Supreme Court and was trying to follow the book. So he looks up at the clock and Chief Justice Rehnquist says to him, why are you looking up there? Look at me. He's just asked the question. Poor fellow shudders. He says, I'm sorry, Your Honor. Well, the following year, the book came out with a new edition. When you're arguing a case, whatever you do, don't look at the clock up above the Chief Justice's head. What else? You argue a case in the Supreme Court, <clears throat> you can have somebody second chair sitting next to you who gets the books, sends you little notes about what a proper answer should be. When I started in the office of the Solicitor General, for excellent Solicitor General, Archibald Cox, who was a professor of labor law at Harvard, Thurgood Marshall, Thurgood Marshall, the first African-American on the Supreme Court. And let me just suffer a little aside about Thurgood Marshall. Before he was appointed to the Supreme Court, he was named Solicitor General because Lyndon Johnson wanted to move him up to the Supreme Court. I was in the staff of the Solicitor General's office, and we were told when Marshall came in on his first day, there were nine of us. Now there's 25 assistants to the Solicitor General. In those days, there were nine. But that we were told, go in and speak to Judge Marshall. He was Judge Marshall because he had been a judge on the Court of Appeals. And introduce yourself. Tell him a little bit about yourself so that he'll get to know his staff because he inherited the staff from Solicitor General Cox. Came my turn. I came in. There's Judge Marshall. I tell him who I am. Went to Harvard Law School. Clerked on the Second Circuit where he had been a judge. Clerked for Justice Harlan on the Supreme Court. Give him a little background. And then I thought I had to tell him this was, I think he came in late in the summer. I said, Judge Marshall, you should know I'm a Sabbath observer, Orthodox Jewish, and therefore I'm not available. I would be leaving early on Fridays, and I'll have to take off for the Jewish holidays. And there's Jewish holidays coming up, I say to him. And I say, Judge, coming up is Jewish New Year, Rosh Hashanah, and then is the holiest day of the Jewish year, Yom Kippur. And that's immediately followed by another holiday called Sukkot. And at that point, Marshall breaks in and says, yes. And then there's Shmini Atzeret and Simchat Torah. <laughs> and I'm looking at this African-American judge. What's he doing? How does he know about Shmini Atzeret and Simchat Torah? I say, judge, how do you know that? He says, don't you know? He says, I was born and raised in Baltimore in the Jewish neighborhood. He says, I was the Shabbos guy. I would go around and turn off lights on Friday night. This was Thurgood Marshall. So I sat at times as second chair for Thurgood Marshall. I also sat as second chair for Archibald Cox. He did not need a lot of help, but there was one case really extraordinary. Now the court hears two cases a day, at 12 o'clock, they're generally over. If it takes till 5 after 12, 10 after 12, they leave for the day. 
In the old days, they would hear arguments in the morning and the afternoon. And promptly at 12 o'clock, boom, the court would say, you're in the middle of an argument. The court would get up and walk out. And then came back at 12.30, and they had, you continued the argument. Well, I'm sitting next to Archibald Cox in a case that involves the conscientious objector provision under which you were exempt from military active duty if you were a conscientious objector. And the question is, did that apply to people who did not belong to an organized religion, who didn't necessarily believe in a God up above? So the court has added all these amazing questions and they're peppering the Solicitor General with questions. And just at one minute to 12, Justice Arthur Goldberg says to Solicitor General Cox, well, what would you say about somebody who follows the philosophy of Martin Buber? And at that point, boom, he's asked the question, 12 o'clock, the court gets up and walks out. Cox and I go off to the side. Cox grabs a hold of me physically. I'd never been grabbed that hard. He shakes me and he says, Nat, Nat, who is Martin Buber? <laughs> I gave him a little bit of a background, so he came back in and answered the question after lunch. Okay, then the case gets called. The Chief Justice says, we will now hear argument in, and he announces the name of the case. That's usually not a problem. But let me tell you, one case I had, you, before you argue, you're in the lawyer's lounge in the Supreme Court. And <clears throat> now you get a little lecture from the clerk of the Supreme Court on you know, what the procedure is and things like that. And I was gonna argue, that I've not only represented Chabad, I have to confess, I've represented Satner, I've represented Babov, I've represented Pupa, I've represented Square, but this was the Satmer case involving the constitutionality of public funding of a school for handicapped children in Kiryas Yoel. So we're getting this lecture, and in the middle of the lecture, the clerk says, now one minute, I have to break this off. I see the Chief Justice's law clerk is motioning to me. He's at the door. I have to go talk to him. He goes off to talk to the Chief Justice's law clerk. Rehnquist was then Chief Justice. And they both, after they talk, make a beeline for me and the clerk says to me, the Chief Justice wants to know, how do you pronounce K-I-R-Y-S? Kyrios. He didn't know whether it was Kyrios or Kyrios or Kar, you know. He needed instruction on how to pronounce the name of the case, Kyrios Yoel. So then you have to open the argument. That's a key part of an oral argument in the Supreme Court. You start, you're opening it to tell the court what the case is about. So you, that's the one part of an oral argument in the Supreme Court that you can prepare. You can prepare probably 30 seconds or 45 seconds before they interrupt you. So let me just, when I argued the um, Yamulka case in the Supreme Court, I had to figure out how I would uh, open the argument. So I tried to record the, um, the opening argument. My phone isn't working that well, so I'll read to you how I opened the argument in the case involving the constitutionality of the law that prohibited a psychologist from wearing a yarmulke with a military uniform. I said, 
this case presents a single constitutional question under the First Amendment's free exercise clause. The issue is whether the military services may unconditionally refuse to make any exemption or accommodation from their dress codes for personnel whose religious convictions require them to wear a neat, small, conservative article of clothing that does not interfere with the execution of any military task, but that is forbidden by the existing military regulations simply because it is not provided for in the dress code and is different from the uniform. In other words, what I was trying to tell the court is nobody is hurt by the fact that somebody wears a yarmulke. And nonetheless, ultimately, we did not win that case, but we got a law passed soon thereafter that required the military to allow the wearing of a yarmulke. But during the argument, all kinds of questions can come up. What's, what is the natural question about the yarmulke? Everybody says, you know, what, what about the turban? Uh, when we talked about a law, the people who opposed the law or questioned said, what about an Indian headdress? Now, the Supreme Court had a couple of years ago a case of a Muslim woman, young girl, who was wearing a hijab uh, headdress. So, but I told you about Justice Marshall and what he knew about Jewish practice. So what happens during the argument? Marshall asks me, one minute now, why wouldn't he just as soon wear a toupee? I said, you've got to understand, you've got to be prepared for these crazy questions. Wear a toupee. I said, no. He says, well, why wouldn't he just as soon wear a toupee? I said, well, because he's not bald. And I think wearing a toupee would look strange. I know a lot of people, says Justice Marshall, who aren't bald and they still wear toupees. And I had to respond saying, since his religion requires his head being covered, then he, it, it, he shouldn't be required to wear a toupee if he's not bald. Well, it turned out that that question interested Justice Marshall not only during my argument, but during the government's argument. And when the government lawyer got up, he said to her, well, he said, you can wear a rug. Marshall called it a rug. But you can't wear a yarmulke? She said, well, I'm sorry, Your Honor, but you can't wear the rug unless it's for prosthetic medical reasons to cover up disfiguration or baldness. It turned out that the government had to admit that you couldn't satisfy this by wearing a toupee or a rug if you were not bald. Now, the, during the argument, all kinds of things can come up. And one of the questions that you have to have one of the things you've got to worry about is what other lawyers who are on your side might say. Year, a couple of years before the Yamaka case, I represented a Sunday observing Presbyterian. Now, how did that happen? How could Nat Lewin, an Orthodox Jew, represent a Sunday observing Presbyterian? Well, the Connecticut Supreme Court had ruled that a Connecticut law that said no person who states that a particular day of the week is observed as his Sabbath may be required by his employer to work on such day. Connecticut passed that law when they repealed their Sunday law. So you could not make somebody work on his Sabbath. I read that decision Oh, they passed the law. Caldor department stores employed a Sunday observing Presbyterian. And he said, I invoke the right under that law. You can't make me work on Sundays. 
and Caldors fired him. He brought a lawsuit in the Connecticut courts. The Connecticut courts, the Supreme Court of Connecticut, said that law is unconstitutional because it says Sabbath. That makes it a religious, a religious prohibition. It violates the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment. I read that because I would read these little books that had summaries of recent opinions. And I said, that's a crazy decision of the Connecticut Supreme Court. The Supreme Court will not uphold that law, will not uphold their vacating that law and saying that the law is unconstitutional. So I called the lawyer who was representing Mr. Thornton, who was the Sunday observing Presbyterian, and I said, let me know when you file your petition in the Supreme Court because I would like to file a friend of the court brief supporting you. And he says to me on the phone, he says, I'm not filing any petition in the Supreme Court. I say, you're not filing? That case is so crazy. You should file in the Supreme Court. He says, well, he says, Mr. Thornton died a couple of months ago, and nobody is going to pay me for going to the Supreme Court on that case. I said, one minute, I'll take over the case, pro bono. He says, okay, talk to the widow. If she agrees, you can represent Thornton or the estate of Thornton. So that's how the case called the estate of Thornton versus Caldor came to the Supreme Court of the United States. I filed the petition. The Supreme Court agreed to hear the case and it was scheduled for argument in which I was representing this Sunday observing Presbyterian. When I filed my petition, somebody said to me, hey, do you know that Connecticut has just recently elected an attorney general who was a Sabbath observer, who's a Shomer Shabbos, Jewish? I said, is that right? Who's that? It's a guy by the name of Joseph Lieberman. Joseph Lieberman. Who's Joseph Lieberman? I picked up the phone, called Joseph Lieberman, the Attorney General of Connecticut, and I said to him, hey, do you know that the Connecticut Supreme Court said that this law is unconstitutional? He said, is that right? I said, read the opinion. Nobody told me about it, he says. If you're going to the Supreme Court, I want to join you. I said, we are too late. Too late. The Supreme Court doesn't allow parties to come in at the Supreme Court level. He says, well, we're the state of Connecticut. They ought to let us come in. I said, well, they'll tell you you should have known about this before. No, I'm going to try to intervene in the case. Go ahead. He filed an application. And the Supreme Court said, yes, you can come into the case. So we argue that case together. I got 20 minutes, Joe Lieberman got 10 minutes. That's the only case he has ever argued in the Supreme Court of the United States. And the interesting thing is that in the transcript of the argument, he said things that years later, when I spoke at a synagogue on some occasion about the Supreme Court and who was in the audience, but Senator Joe Lieberman. And I said to the audience, I want you to know, I've got to disclose something that's been a secret to this day. And people are looking. I said, I want to disclose to you that Joe Lieberman and I are siblings. Lieberman's sitting there, he's looking at me shocked. I said, we are. Everybody's shocked. I said, well, let me read to you from what Senator Lieberman said to the Supreme Court. He said, and this appears in the transcript, well, as my brother Lewin indicated, we believe very strongly that this statute is legal, constitutional. He even went on later on in the, his argument to say, my brother Lewin has talked about the question of whether this statute is absolute. I said, you don't argue, you don't lie to the Supreme Court. 
if Senator Lieberman says, I'm his brother, finally it has to come out. What do you do during the oral argument when there are questions? Well, I think the other day I mentioned that the Supreme Court may very well overrule an adverse decision in a case that I had the privilege of arguing again for somebody who was not Jewish, who was employed by TWA and was fired because he refused to work on Sundays. A case called Hardison, Transworld Airlines versus Hardison, argued on March 30th, 1977. And in that argument, the claim was made by TWA that Mr. Hardison could be fired for not working on Sundays because there was a union contract that TWA had entered into with the union of which Hardison was a member that put him all the way down on the totem pole of being able to select his own schedule. And therefore, more senior members of the union would be able to take off on the days that were Jewish holidays or Friday afternoons and could not be forced to work at times when Hardison was not available. I argued TWA didn't have the right to give away Hardison's privilege and right that federal law granted him. I had drafted a law that said that the employer has to accommodate to reasonably to religious needs and religious observances of the employee. So I said, TWA had to acknowledge Hardison's right under federal law and not simply bargain it away in a contract with the union. And I said that, we, that the union only has the rights. I said, as employer, I said, we think that the union sp speaks here of rights as if the rights go up to the union and the employees against the whole world. An employer couldn't sell the Brooklyn Bridge in his collective bargaining agreement and then have his employees or his union say, we have rights to the Brooklyn Bridge because you put it into the agreement. I said that over and over again. He can't assign the Brooklyn Bridge, somebody who doesn't own it. TWA doesn't own Hardison's rights. Well, the news media loved that analogy to the Brooklyn Bridge. And the stories in the Washington Post and the Times the following day said, when they reported on the argument that Hardison's lawyer had said that TWA has no more right to give away Hardison's rights than they do to sell the Brooklyn Bridge. Um, now, after you've argued, the other side has argued, if you argue first, if you're the side that's seeking to reverse the decision below, you get a right of rebuttal. What do you do in the rebuttal? Lawyers are so excited about having the opportunity to argue in the Supreme Court that it takes a lot of self-control not to get up and use the time that you've saved for rebuttal. But I can only tell you that there's nothing that the Supreme Court loves more than if you say, I waive my rebuttal time. Take the minutes, few minutes that I have left, take it back. But if there are points that have come up in the other side's argument that are critical, you've got to answer those. So I've given you now kind of a summary of various experiences I've had with the Supreme Court. The, um, Sometimes you can lose, and then years later, you win. Tomorrow morning at 9.15, you'll hear from my daughter, who argued the Israel passport case, Sivatovsky, which we were very 
upset about losing by six to three, and it ended up after President Trump was elected as being a great victory. One of the first cases that, Jewish cases that I argued in private practice in the Supreme Court was a case in 1976 when the New York legislature decided that Williamsburg, which had a uh, district, an election district that was heavily Hasidic, should be divided because the Justice Department had said that minorities, blacks, Hispanics, are not able to elect enough uh, representatives for the local legislature. And under pressure from the Department of Justice, the New York legislature split the Hasidic district in half and um, created two districts in neither of which did the Hasidim have enough voting power to be able to elect a representative. They came to me and I brought the case, United Jewish Organizations of Williamsburg versus the then governor of New York, Carey. And I still remember they came to me, we discussed it, decided we had to bring a federal court action, bring it in Brooklyn, of course, in the federal court in Brooklyn. And I still remember the day that I went to the federal court in Brooklyn to file that case. And we were then gonna get a judge and there's gonna be a hearing on whether to issue an injunction. And I hand the complaint to a Hispanic young man who's there behind the desk. And he looks at the complaint, which was a couple of pages long, and he reads the caption of the case. And he says, oh, United Jewish Organizations of Williamsburg versus Cary? Ooh, this sounds like a case that should go to the Supreme Court. He was right, I couldn't believe it. We filed it, the moment we filed it, this clerk says it should go to the Supreme Court. Well, it went to the Supreme Court. And in the Supreme Court, again, this was one of the first cases I had for Jewish interests. The Supreme Court decided then that discriminating against the white Hasidic population in Williamsburg in order to get more blacks and Hispanics elected was permissible under the Voting Rights Act. And they really ended up rejecting our position, although we had a very lively argument. And I have to tell you that among the justices who asked the most questions and the most penetrating questions was Justice Potter Stewart, who's really underestimated today. He, very fine justice, but he voted with a majority. And I remember shortly after they came down with that decision, I was over at the Supreme Court using their library and I remember walking down the steps and Justice Stewart is walking up towards me. And I say, good morning, Justice Stewart. And he says to me, Nat, he says, that case you sent us, that's a, that was a tough, tough case. I said, so why did you rule against me? Never got an answer. There was one dissenting vote in the case and that was by Justice Warren Berger. And Warren Berger, dissented, agreed with a dissenting judge in the lower court that it was unconstitutional to do that. That opinion, I was told years later, Berger was not known for doing a lot of his own writing or research. That opinion, I was told later, was written, the person who wrote it told it to me, by a man who later became a judge in the Court of Appeals in California, Court of Appeals on Ninth Circuit, Alex Kozinski. He was the clerk for Warren Berger, and he told me that he wrote the draft of this dissenting opinion, and Berger immediately said, print it up, I agree with it. So he dissented. It took from 1977, when the court said it was constitutional to do that, 
until 1993, when in a case called Shaw versus Reno, the Supreme Court overruled effectively their decision in the United Jewish Organizations of Williamsburg case and said, if you have race in mind, it's unconstitutional. You can't deliberately gerrymander for racial purposes. I have very few minutes left, but I do want to tell you just a couple of little anecdotes about the Jewish justices on the Supreme Court. Uh, one anecd recent anecdote, well, a couple, two, two, I'll tell you two stories. One about Stephen Breyer. When Breyer was named to the court, I was president of the International Association of Jewish Lawyers and Jurists. And we, the year before, we'd done a big ceremony in the Supreme Court courtroom giving an award to Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was the first Jewish justice in 25 years. She came after Scalia was appointed to the court. Scalia would tell me I considered myself during the time until Ruth Ginsburg came to the court as being the equivalent of the Jewish justice on the Supreme Court. Because, said Scalia, I not only could pronounce yeshiva, but I knew what a yeshiva was. He said, the other justices in the court had no idea. This is related to the story about Rehnquist, because in a case involving yeshiva, Rehnquist opened the thing by saying, we will now hear the case of yeshiva, something other. Anyway, Ruth Ginsburg was celebrated. The following year, we had to celebrate Justice Breyer. We gave him an award. But when Ruth Ginsburg was given an award, it was around Shavuos, so we gave her, I gave her an engraving of a scene from Megillas Rus and a copy of Megillas Rus, nice bound copy. What was I gonna do with Steve Breyer? So I said to Steve Breyer, what's your Hebrew name? Steve Breyer is again, not personally observant. But he said to me, I don't know. But I think, he says, I think my brother may know. He has a brother who's a judge in the federal court in California. I said, please let me know. I wanted to buy an appropriate thing like the gift we had for Ruth Ginsburg. I then went off to Israel, didn't, had gotten an answer, and then I get a fax. In those days, it was a fax from Breyer's chambers that what? His name is, not only gave me his name, Steve, Shlomo, but he said, Shlomo Ben Yitzchak. Shlomo Ben Yitzchak? That's Rashi. Shlomo Ben Yitzchak is Rashi. I said, that's amazing. So I walked around the Meisharim, found a beautiful engraving which had the commentary, Rashi's commentary on the first chapter of Kriyashma written out in Rashi Ksav. I bought it, I had the ceremony in the Supreme Court, explained, I presided, explained what Rashi, that his name, Justice Breyer's name is Rashi, and here is Rashi, the great commentator. I even had a good friend who had also clerked for Justice Goldberg and was teaching at the Harvard Law School a fellow by the name of Alan Dershowitz, some of you may have heard of him. I had him make the presentation to Breyer. I asked Dershowitz before he made the presentation, please read the Rashi. Now you have to realize that Dershowitz was in my class of my father-in-law, my wife's father, Zachron Lavracha, his shear and got thrown out every day. <laughs> anyway, we, I made the presentation, Dershowitz made it, and uh, Breyer has been proud ever since that his name is Rashi. And he told me recently, he says, I went to the Marble Arts Synagogue in London, and at the Marble Arts Synagogue in London, they recognized me and they came over to me and they said, Justice Breyer, what is your Hebrew name? We would like to call you up for the Torah. And Justice Breyer tells me, I first said to the guy, I don't know the Hebrew name. And then as he was walking away, I said to him, one minute, one minute. My name is the same as Rashi. 
And Breyer says, I got an aliyah. I got called up to the Torah. That was Stephen Breyer. Uh, Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings and toracafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.